to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Although we still have a chapter and a bit to do, I do want to concentrate on these few verses with you this evening because they are rather important verses, and I think for most of us they are a little unfamiliar, and in some ways they are quite difficult verses. At verse 14 of Hebrews 12, many commentators think the apostle now turns to practical duties for the first time. And yet, you get the same note that has been running through the earlier part of chapter 12, here still in verse 14, the note of perseverance. And you'll remember that has been one of the great characteristic themes that has run through this part of the epistle, uh, especially sounded out in the first two verses in the picture of the race. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And this whole concept of perseverance runs through not only these verses, but of course the whole of the epistle to the Hebrews, which in a sense is an exhortation to persevere in faith, to go on in the Christian race. The very first word in verse 14 suggests this. It's the word strive in the RSV. It's variously translated follow. I think follow is the authorized version. Pursue, some translations have. Run swiftly after, one of the modern translations says. As well as here in the RSV, strive for peace with all men. It's the word which is used, interestingly enough, in the New Testament for persecuting. The word to hound someone in such a way that you are actually persecuting, to persist in a course of action the way a persecutor does. You remember how the Apostle Paul tells us that in order to hound the Christians, he persecuted them, and the word means he pursued them everywhere they were to be found. He bent all his energies in this direction to track them down. Now, the point of the word is this, that just as the persecutor bends all his energies to one thing, that is to persecuting the church of God, so says the author to the Hebrews, we are to bend our energies in the midst of testing times to strive after peace with all men and for holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, in the midst of these testing times of this Christian race, you remember the Christian race is the marathon and not a sprint. It's a long race in which perseverance is of the essence of running it well. We are to strive for certain goals and we are to be seeing written on the tape, as it were, in front of us as we see the finishing post. Two things particularly. And we are to pursue them with the same concentration and the same zeal that the persecutors pursue their prey. And the two things that we are to pursue in this sense are peace, verse 14 at the beginning, and holiness halfway through. Now, obviously, the writer of the epistle is addressing himself to the church. And he is speaking very comprehensively about our duty towards men, 
first of all strive for peace with all men and our duty towards God and for holiness or for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, these two are, of course, the representatives of the two tables of the law, as they are sometimes called, the two parts of the Ten Commandments, the first concerned with our duty to God and the second concerned with our duty to men. And we can never divide them from each other. And peace with men and holiness before God are therefore two inseparable things, and they really represent very much more than simply peace and holiness. They are representatives of the whole of our duty to men, to one another, and to God. It even slips into our speech, doesn't it, when we talk about... Uh, somebody said it to me just uh, the other day... Um, he came to see me about some difficulty with difficulties he was having in relationships with someone else. And he said at the end of the interview, we had a most unholy row. Now, that's an interesting phrase we use because, you see, it brings together these two things, peace and holiness. And peace and holiness really are together in our life, in our behavior, in our character, peace towards men and holiness towards God. Where disharmony and its effects appear between believers, it is a sure sign of unholiness in someone's life somewhere. And if you think that through, you'll discover that it is abundantly true. So John Owen, the great Puritan commentator in Hebrews, says the Christian community should be an example of harmony and holiness. What the prayer book calls holy concord. Now that is the characteristic that ought to be seen in the Christian fellowship. Harmony and holiness. And you never find the one without the other. And the absence of the one betrays the absence of the other somewhere. Now that means, of course, and this is why it was so important to them in times of stress. They were living in days of stress, in a situation of stress within the church of God. And in times of stress like that, one of the primary things that the devil will seek to destroy in a local church is harmony and concord. And he will do so by sowing seeds of dissension and tension. He will do so by sowing seeds of innuendo and gossip. Did you hear? Just for prayer, of course. Just for prayer. But did you hear about so-and-so? And seeds of dissension and criticism of the wrong kind. And disharmony and suspicion begin to be sown. And the devil begins to destroy one of the basic characteristics of the church of God, which is peace. And it is almost always caused by some unholy thing harbored in the heart of 
someone somewhere. When every believer is earnestly seeking peace, remembering Jesus' beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, then much that is harmful in the family of God will disappear. I do think we need, in these modern days, to take the apostles' words with great seriousness. Because peace in the church of Christ is something that we are to pursue, says the psalmist. Do you remember? Seek peace in Psalm 34. Seek peace and pursue it. That is, go after it. Make peace one of your great aims and concerns. Peace with other men. Not peace at any price. Very obviously because this peace is allied to holiness. But peace which God means to rule in his family. I find it a, an appalling thing that one of the things many churches are known for and evangelical churches are not excused from it, is the strife and dissension that goes on and the bickering and criticism and gossip which takes place. And it's a very great evil, beloved, and something which we desperately need to bring before God and ask him to enable us to strive for peace with all men. Spurgeon says, if we would follow peace, commenting on this or preaching on it anyway, I suppose, if we would follow peace, we must gird up our loins with the girdle of forbearance. We must resolve that as we will not give offense, neither shall we take offense. And if offense be felt, we must resolve to forgive. It does seem as if the reference may be wider than the church, that is, to all men, strive for peace with all men. And that could be all men within the fellowship. That is, those you dislike, those you disagree with on a lot of things, as well as those you find it easier to get along with. Being gracious to those who would oppose themselves to you. And it is one of the greatest tests of Christian character. Our Christian character is really tested when we have difficult people provoking us. And you begin to ask then, how do I respond? That's when grace is really found to be present or absent in our hearts. I um, served for a time in the Presbytery of Urban and Kilmarnock as the convener of a committee that was called the Superintendent's Committee. And my task was to go wherever there was uh, some kind of problem or some kind of disagreement within a congregation and uh, try to resolve it. And I went as the Presbytery's deputy for this. I have never had such a miserable year, I suppose, in my life. I thought that this was a sinecure, uh, although I suppose you're paid for a sinecure, and it couldn't have been that, but I thought that there would be little to do. 
And yet I spent so much of my time going round congregation after congregation. And really what they needed was not the convener of a superintendent's committee, but a wrestling referee to hold them apart. It was quite an appalling thing to find. But you know, it can be so much more sinister than that. And what I want to say to you this evening is that it is always caused by unholiness somewhere. So we are to be devoted to one another within the church of God. But of course our deepest devotion is the one which controls our devotion to one another and that is our devotion to God in personal, practical holiness. Strive after that too, says the apostle. Now you will notice that the verb at the beginning of the sentence in verse 14 also governs the holiness without which no one will see the Lord as well as the peace that we are to have with all men. Strive for peace with all men and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let me quote Spurgeon to you again. The cultivation of peace is a great aid to personal and practical holiness. Where discontent and envy and strife dominate the heart, piety is choked. A bitter spirit, says Spurgeon, is a poor companion for a renewed heart. Now this holiness of life is something that we are actively to pursue. Do you notice these two things he exhorts them to do? Pursue hope, peace, he says. Pursue peace with other people. That is, work at it. Don't just sit back if your nature is to be a carnaptious, difficult kind of person. Pursue it. If other people are not going to live in godly harmony with you, work at that, he says. Pursue it with all your being. And the other thing to pursue with your whole heart is holiness. Now you will notice the point of this. We have to set our life in such a direction that we actively cultivate godliness. In scripture you see holiness of life, personal practical holiness as they call it at Keswick. And it was the basis on which the Keswick Convention was founded for teaching on personal practical holiness. But personal practical biblical holiness is not an accidental phenomenon which turns up in some lives rather than others. It's not an accidental appearance that happens to be in a certain type of person from a certain kind of background. Personal biblical holiness is a harvest, beloved. That's what we need to grasp. And the apostle says, pursue it. Work towards it. Give your whole being towards this. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And the apostle Paul is speaking about the harvest of godliness or ungodliness. You reap what you sow. And holiness is a fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. And these are the marks of biblical holiness. So we are to be like farmers, carefully cultivating this harvest. Letting the plough break up the fallow ground in our hearts first of all. And that so often happens as God 
drives his blade into our spirits and breaks up areas of our hearts that have been closed to him. Now, if you are not ready to pursue that happening in your life, biblical holiness will never appear. Sowing the right kind of seed and having it sown duly and deeply. Tending it, feeding it, weeding it. So that the great business of life is holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Beloved, I find I have to ask my own heart this evening, is that the great business of my life? And I say to you again, it's not just an accidental production which you suddenly find appearing in a field. No farmer goes out to his field to inspect it and the man comes along and says to him, what are you growing here? He says, I've really no idea. What have you been doing? Nothing at all, but I'm just hoping. Well, the man will say to him, you will get nothing out of that field because whatever a man sows, that he also reaps. And that's the law of holiness in the Bible. And therefore we need to be ready to ask God to water and feed and weed in our lives. This is why the hard-working farmer is so often a common figure in Scripture. Have you noticed this? One of the things that the apostle is telling them in this part of the chapter is that the chastening and discipline and trials of life, the dark periods of spiritual experience, are one of the means that God uses to produce holiness. Now you will notice that because holiness is a harvest, it does not appear overnight. I may have told you I well remember when um, one of our children was very small. They went out with a packet of seeds that uh, my wife had bought. She is a great inspector of the seed packets uh, for the gardening, uh, or was when we were in New Mills, anyway. And we had a lot of competition there, you know. We had some remarkable gardeners all around, and they all came up to look around at your garden. We used to buy these seeds packets. Quite often they lay in the shelf till the next year, and we'd forgotten to sow them. But the children got one this day, went out and uh, sowed it in the ground, and uh, saw this lovely picture in the outside, you know. And then the next morning, they were up very early, and charging outside to the place where the soil had been raked over very neatly and water put on it because we said you have to water them. And the utter sense of disillusionment that came over their faces. And I remember one of them saying to me, Daddy, they haven't growed. <laughs> now, of course, you see, that kind of instant production does not happen in the real world. And my Christian brothers and sisters, the production of biblical godliness doesn't happen that way either. It happens with much plowing of the soil, much breaking up of the fallow ground, careful sowing of the right seed, watering of it, waiting for it, feeding it, weeding it, waiting until the plant begins to grow, and then even when it has appeared, one of the great things in fruit-bearing is pruning. And you will never get real fruit until you have pruned back 
And this is what the apostle is speaking about in this context. They have been going through some dark hours, some mysterious experiences. And I reckon that very many of us here this evening could testify to that sort of thing. But it is in such experiences that God in the mystery of his grace is producing holiness and our business is to pursue it with all our hearts. And of course, don't you know that when you are in the midst of one of these difficult periods, what uh, Spurgeon again, you may have uh, discovered that I have a bit of a yen for Spurgeon, but Spurgeon speaks about the Christian's fainting fits. And we have many fainting fits when we are weak and cast down and when we find our spiritual knees going wobbly and we are in the dark. And precisely at that time, what does the devil do? He keeps you from attending the means of grace. That's the first thing he does. What's the point in going tonight? How often I've heard people say that. He closes the Bible and says, no point in going there again. He shuts off the place of prayer for you and says you would scarcely be welcome there, somebody like you. No point in praying. You don't feel anything, do you? Do you feel anything? And you answer honestly, no, I don't. And he said, well, what's the point of it then? He's keeping you from the kind of tending of the soil which is going to produce barrenness instead of holiness. Now notice the importance of holiness. You'll see the point of this in verse 11, uh, incidentally. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The importance of holiness is, of course, in the end of the verse. Without it, says the apostle, no one will see the Lord. You remember how Jesus makes the same point in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So holiness and seeing the Lord appear to be tied together in the scriptures. What the apostle means, of course, is not a physical vision. Although he may well be speaking, as many people think, of the seeing of the Lord face to face with all the rewards of glory which come not because we have been holy but because God has been gracious. But basically, he is saying in John Owen's words that holiness is the way to blessedness. That's the principle. Holiness is the way to blessedness. Now this is why he says pursue holiness. It is because holiness is the road to blessedness, to that kind of life which will see the Lord in the spiritual sense, which will begin to have new visions of his glory and of his grace, whose understanding of his mercy and his glory will be broadened. And so we will be able, as the apostle has already said to us of Moses, to endure Chapter 11, verse 27, to endure as seeing him who is invisible. Now, that's the great thing about the Christian. 
I always remember Stanley Collins. Do any of you remember Stanley Collins who used to be in the tent hall here in Glasgow, I think? And he gave an address which I've, I've never forgotten his points. They were so easy to remember. He said, the Christian is a man who does the impossible because he sees the invisible and hears the inaudible. And he had two or three others, which I can't remember to start, but that's a great thing, you know. The Christian is the man who does the impossible because he sees the invisible. He endured the seeing him who is invisible. Now, how is it that a man gets this kind of vision? How is it that he gets the answer to this prayer in the hymn we were singing this evening? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my life, not be all else to me save that thou art. That comes when a man is pursuing holiness as the great business of his life. Not you will notice believing that he has achieved holiness. Because the person of whom the apostle is speaking will above all other men be conscious of the fact that he is only at the very beginning of the race as it were. That he has achieved practically nothing and he will bemoan his own emptiness. But he is moving in that direction. He will be able to say, Lord, you know that this is the great business of life to me. It is as simple as this, you see. We will never begin to know the depths of all that God is. We will never be able to have fellowship with him in the way that he intended when he created and redeemed us. If we are careless about holy living. Oh, that God would write that on our hearts this evening. We will never come to know the depths of God's grace and the fullness of what fellowship was meant to be with him for us as his children if we are careless of holy living. And it is a great victory as John Owen writes. It is a great victory for the devil if he can make God's people careless of holiness. And this has a lot to do with the general theme of perseverance. So there is the principle. Holiness clarifies and deepens our vision of God. Unholiness of life distorts it. Now in verse 15, the apostle turns again to the question of the mutual spiritual care we ought to have for each other in the fellowship. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and so on. This is a point you can easily miss in the translation. What the apostle is speaking about is the question of mutual spiritual care for each other in the fellowship. Now, the point is missed because in the RSV it's translated, see to it. In the authorized version, looking diligently and in various other ways in different translations, but none of them that I have seen takes up the real meaning of the Greek word. Interestingly, the word that's used for see to it is the same word that is used in 1 Peter 5, for example, for the oversight of the elder concerning the flock of God. So what he is urging us to do here is to exercise pastoral oversight 
It's the word from which we get the word episcopal. And it's the word that's frequently translated in the New Testament, either bishop or elder. So it is pastorally care. Look upon people as a shepherd. It's the picture of Jesus who saw people as those having no shepherd. And he had compassion upon them. Now the apostle says, have this pastoral care among yourselves so that no one fails to obtain the grace of God or falls short, as some of the translations have it, of divine grace. Now it is this whole matter of seeking and again you can see how he is pressing them about the fellowship. It is this whole matter of having a pastoral heart for one another in the fellowship of the Lord's people. Here's something that I do long that God would really write deeply in our hearts. This great need that there is in every fellowship that God may give to us, not just to the elders who need it in, a, in an abundant sense, but to every one of us a pastoral heart for God's people amongst us so that we cannot really come in here and look around upon one another without having a pastoral heart that goes out to one another. Now that, you see, is what really lies at the root of a caring fellowship, a caring family. It's not just that we notice somebody is there and we want to run after them like sheepdogs to bring them into the fold and get them there again. It is the care of a shepherd which looks for people and wonders how they are. You may even look at their faces and behind their faces you will ask, what is there there? What is the need there? Because I care for my brothers and sisters in Christ. It matters to me where they are with God. Beloved, I do want to say to you, we desperately need this. Does it really matter so profoundly to me where my brothers and sisters are with God? Does it become a burden on my spirit that some may not be going on with the Lord, that some may actually be going back? Do I see signs of encouragement here and there and somebody is going on and there is zeal for Christ and I want to pray them on? It's that kind of pastoral care see to it that no one fail to obtain the grace of God Spurgeon who else was saying when I was having a look at him today as you might be excused for concluding Spurgeon says it means being on our watchtower for ourselves and our brothers, having a loving solicitude for the spiritual well-being of our fellow pilgrims. See, we really are called by God to answer that question, am I my brother's keeper? Well, what do you think? Are you? God's answer is, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. 
And when God brings us into a family and into a fellowship like that, he binds us together for that end. That we are our brother's keeper. Now, you will notice that this is a different thing from being interfering busybodies or Pharisaic fault finders. It is the loving concern of brothers and sisters who long for the highest in each other. You see, that qualifies the kind of peace that we look for. It's not the peace that belongs to a world of carelessness. It is the peace within the context of which we see the beauty of holiness in the family of God. And the reason is, lest anyone fail to obtain the grace of God. Now, the word failing to obtain really means to be deficient in. It's an interesting phrase. This is why I said this passage is sometimes difficult. It's difficult because the language isn't very clear and the translations aren't really very good. Failing to obtain the grace of God. What do you think that means? Well, the word means to lack. It's the word, interestingly, that's used in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son went down into the far country, and we read a great famine arose in that country, and he began to be in want. Now, it's that phrase, in want. He lacked food. He didn't have it. And it's that of which the apostle speaks here. See to it that no one is in want of the grace of God. And to be wanting in the grace of God is either to have known the grace of God but not to be drawing from it, as just one or two people commenting on Hebrews think, or more probably, and this is what I tend to believe it is, more probably it means to have a form of godliness but never really to have known the grace of God in all its fullness and power working in your life. A.W. Pink, who also wrote a commentary on Hebrews, says this, It is a head knowledge of the truth as a substitute for a miracle of grace wrought in the heart. Now, I think what he is warning about here is this, that when you are within such a loving, caring fellowship, one of the things that we will never be content with, we will never be satisfied with, is mere outward profession. The thing that we will be deeply burdened over is that there will be a true miracle of God's grace evident in one another's lives that people never stop short of experiencing the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. As I say, the other possibility is that he is warning genuine Christians that they must not live on any other resources than the fullness of God's grace, and I think that could be an application. But whatever the right interpretation may be, the result is that a root of bitterness springs up. Do you notice in verse 15, halfway through? A root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, 
and because of it, many are defiled. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it, the many become defiled. Now, this is a very practical thing. Apply it, if you can think of the situation, uh, to somebody who has the form of godliness, as Paul says, but denying the power of it. That is, who has in some sense been influenced, but has never really had a miracle of God's grace performed in their life. This root of bitterness is what the apostle to the Hebrews tells us springs up. Now, it's a phrase which has its origins in Israel's history in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and I'm reading from verse 18. Here is, is the, the occasion when the covenant was made again in Moab, and um, God speaks through Moses to the people in these words. Listen to this. Beware. Now, he's remembering, you know, how they were brought out of the land of Egypt, and many of them wanted to go back and looked back to the flesh pots of Egypt and longed to be back there again. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Now that's where the phrase comes from. You'll notice that it's in inverted commas in the RSV because it's a quotation from Deuteronomy 29, 18. Beware lest there be a man or a family or a tribe amongst you who turns away from following the Lord and a root of bitterness begins to grow up and, says the apostle, causes trouble and by it the many become defiled. Now one has seen this root of bitterness. I wonder if you know what the apostle is speaking about. It is probably a person who has never really tasted the grace of God, but at some certain point has turned back. I think, may I share this with you, I think that there are some forms of evangelism, and I think this is the sort of thing you can find in any realm of evangelism. But there is sometimes in some forms of evangelism such pressure brought upon people to bring them to some kind of decision at a high point of emotion before they are really being wrought upon by the grace of God. And what happens is that you get the decision. And then the person discovers that there never has been a deep and genuine work of grace and instead of the emotional high which comes after the decision, you get bitterness developing in the soul. And that root of bitterness causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. Now you see how this happens. What happens is that the person says, I have tried it. I've tried it and it didn't work. I remember a man I met in New Mills once. Outside a pub, I'd got a telephone call asking me to go and see him. And I think he's now dead. 
But I remember going down and seeing him outside the pub. And I took him into the car and took him home and sat with him the whole night feeding him black coffee. I didn't know very much about these things, but actually I remember Tom Allen telling me that the thing to give people like that was black coffee. And I fed him black coffee out of his own kitchen half the night. And we sat and waited until he came round a bit. And he said to me, You know, of course, my story. He said, I became a Christian. And he told me the time and the place and the situation. And he said, Everybody had me up on the platform the next night telling them what had happened to me. And he said, Do you know what had happened to me? Nothing. But he said, I was under great pressure. And he said, in my soul since then, there has been a growing hardness against God, and I'm further away from God than I've ever been in my life. Now, you will not mistake me to be saying that I don't believe in people being pressed to decide for Christ. I hope you know me better than that. But what I want to say to you, my dear friends, is that it is so important for us to be under the powerful ministry of the Spirit of God, giving us a sensitivity to where people are and to know that our utter dependence is not upon our manipulation of people, but upon the grace and power of the Holy Spirit to bring people right through to taste the grace of God. And I think this is the kind of care that we need to see to it, care for one another that no one fail to obtain the grace of God. How important. Philip Hughes says the implication is that one embittered and rebellious person who has stopped just short of the grace of God can have a disastrous effect on the community as a whole. Now finally in verses 16 and 17 there is an example of that root of bitterness in Esau. His story is intended to be a warning. In verse 16, that no one be immoral or irreligious like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The marks that the apostle singles out of Esau's life, do you notice, as a man with a bitter root are immorality and profanity, not irreligious in the RSV. That's not really a very good translation. It's profane. Isn't that what the authorized version has? Profane. And profane is better. Profanity, you see, is making light of holy things, mocking or ridiculing holy things. Profanity is the spirit that clowns about the things of God and makes light of them. 
Now, in the Old Testament, interestingly, we don't actually find Esau described as immoral. It's very obvious what his profanity is, but we don't find him described as immoral, and it says that no one be immoral or irreligious like Esau. And I rather think the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is probably uh, thinking about the two godless women that Esau took as wives. Do you remember that in Genesis 26? The two foreign wives who were the godless wives Esau took, and he married both of them. And the writer of the epistle probably looks to that as an evidence of his immoral nature. But his profanity is seen in what someone has called his sacrificing of spiritual privileges for fleshly advantages. He looked with contempt, in other words, on the immense blessings associated with his birthright. Now that's a great warning for us about esteeming lightly the things that God takes seriously. Whatever else we may know about Esau and Jacob, you know, the one thing that's clear is that God took seriously the privileges of the birthright of the elder child. And Esau took what God took seriously and held it up to contempt. And he took it lightly. That's really what his profanity is in. And I say again, that's a real warning to us. Not just about the crude profaning of God's holiness and of holy things. Do you ever think that this is why the Bible tells us not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain? Because God's name is his character, which is his holiness, which God holds to be holy. And I sometimes shudder when I, when I hear how people can lightly take God's name in vain. I think it's something we need to be careful about because it betrays something deeper. It's the warning against the greater danger of bartering not an earthly but a heavenly birthright for the sake of some enticement of the world, the flesh, or the devil, profanely trampling underfoot what God holds dear. And that's a very important thing for us to learn. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601 or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God. <music>